Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. We thank you that you have given us this passage of Scripture. God, this is not a passage of Scripture that we are really comfortable with, but God, we know that you have given it to us for a purpose, for a reason, and that reason is to highlight the work that you have done for us on the cross, to highlight your love for us. So God, I pray tonight as we Uh, As we look at this passage, as we unpack it, would your spirit take your word and would he make use of it in our hearts? Would he allow it to seep down into our hearts? Give us a correct view of ourselves. Give us a correct view of you so, so, so that we might know our place in our relation to you. God, would you humble us tonight? Those of us who have known you for many years, would you humble us? Those of us who have yet to put our faith in you. Would you humble us as well? And Father, we love you. And we thank you for your son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So if I'm just going to be honest with you uh, this evening, I was talking to a couple of people before this service. And uh, this passage, as you just heard read, is not, uh, this isn't the passage, a passage I would just normally pick uh, to preach on, if you just kind of get a pick and choose what you want to teach on, this probably isn't the one that, the one that talks about uh, us giving up God's glory for birds and homosexuality and just goes through the list of all this stuff. This probably isn't the one that, that you just want to go right out of the gate with. And uh, so t- just to be honest, this is, this is a pas- passage that I am, that I, uh, I feel the weight of it. I feel the weight of it even today as I was praying through this passage and, and preparing. Um, God is, the, the great thing about, about the gospel is there's good news. There's really, really good news. But for that good news to be really good news, we have to understand the bad news and how bad it really, really is and what it says about you and about me. Because the truth of the matter is you are worse off than you think like way worse than you could ever imagine. But what that then shows us is the gospel of God is even better than we could ever imagine. So tonight, really, the objective, I think the aim of this passage is to get us to think about that. Last week, if you were here with us last week, we looked at uh, a great, beautiful passage that talked about the simplicity of Christ, brought us back to that, to come back and behold Christ and all of his beauty, to remind us of that, Paul says that he wants to come to these Christians so, he can, so that he can bring the gospel to them again. Why? Because you need it again. I need it again. We need to have the seed of the gospel watered over and over and over again so that God might bring growth to it, bear fruit in our lives. And so, uh, so we celebrated that. We took the Lord's Supper. We remembered that. We touched it. We tasted it. We heard it. We felt it. And then right here, the very next verse, it's like the lights go out. It's like we're thrown out into the middle of the sea. There's out of nowhere. Everything's all good and fine. And all of a sudden you're just out in the middle of space and it's dark and you're scared. And for good reason. Because for us to know what we are saved to, we have to know what we are saved from. 
We have to know the true condition of our hearts. You have to get the true condition of your, your place before God. Because what happens is, uh, and I know this because I know myself, I like to wiggle. Not, not, not the wiggle, the dance, the, the PB&J otter uh, dance. I'm, I'm talking about my heart likes to wiggle uh, when, when, I'm, uh, when, when condemnation comes to me. When, when guilt is coming my way, when punishment is coming my way, I, I like to slide a step to the right and just kind of get out of the way of that uh, and, just, and remove myself from that. I think it's something that we, we even learn as kids to do that. We, we, we don't grow out of it. But I remember being a kid growing up and I had, I didn't have an imaginary friend, but I did have an imaginary brother. Uh, the problem is I already have two brothers. So uh, I invented this brother and his name was Zachary. Uh, I named him Zachary because that's the name that I wanted to be called when I was born. And my mom and dad called me Kevin instead, which is a very boring name. I thought Zachary wasn't, any Zacharys here tonight? Oh, yeah. But you go by Zach. Do you ever go by Zachary? From now on, I doom, I, I deem you Zachary. Uh, I want to be called Zachary, so I, I named my imaginary brother Zachary. And Zachary served one purpose. He wasn't my playmate. We didn't, like, sit down and play with Legos and G.I. Joes and, and all that. He was my accomplice, okay? So he was my, my scapegoat my way out. So whenever mommy told me to clean my room and I said, okay, yeah, I'll go clean my room. And she comes into my room an hour later and it's dirty. And I say, I cleaned it. I don't know what happened. Zachary must have come in and just messed it all up. I don't know. Zachary did it. Go talk to Zachary about it. Or the one that's really, and if you're, if you, uh, if you're honest with yourself, you know this is true, at least if you're a boy. The worst thing you can do is pee on the toilet seat when you're a little kid, especially when you have one bathroom in the house. Uh, and uh, I may or may not have been bad about that. And I would blame that on Zachary. Like Zachary, he, he, he's the one who made a mess in the bathroom. Uh, so get mad at him. And I would just blame all this stuff on Zachary. And so, uh, but the, the thing is, we, we don't ever grow out of that. We just get more sophisticated in our, in our blame shifting and in our wiggling and... Um, and, and so what, what it is, is what this passage forces us to do is to come nose to nose with our own sin, to actually face it. Like, you know, we talked last week about really coming nose to nose with Jesus, getting, getting a clear, close view of him. But that's not all that we do. There's this other part. We have to get a close, clear view of ourselves, And so this passage really helps us do that. Uh, a commentator used this, this, uh, this illustration. He, he, he described that the, in the first part of Romans, it, it's like the gospel is, is given to us as this beautiful, shining, clear diamond for us to look at and to enjoy. And it's beautiful, and we're looking at it, we're checking it out. And then the second half of Romans 1, all the way really up, in, up until chapter 3, verses 21, for the next really two and a half chapters, it's like this black cloth gets brought under that diamond. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with that uh, in, in, in the jewelry world. They'll do that sometimes. They'll put a, a black cloth under a jewel, under a diamond, uh, so that its perfections, its clarity will be shown even clearer. So you put a black cloth under there, 
And it brings out the beauty of the diamond even more so. That's what this passage is. That's what tonight is. It's putting the black cloth under the diamond so that we might understand the depth, the breadth, and the beauty of the gospel even more as we see ourselves. So to see Jesus more clearly, more closely, we have to see our sin more clearly and more closely. At the same time, we have to be seeing both of those things. So in verse 18, Paul has just finished saying something beautiful, something great. Justification comes to you. You are, you are made right by faith. God gives his righteousness to you by faith. It's revealed. And then 18, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God. That is something that we definitely don't like to think about God being wrathful. Like we think, okay, New Testament, God is nice and plays games and uh, is, you know, dies for us and comes around and puts his arm around. He's our friend. But Old Testament God, he's the angry one who's like slaying people and all that. But then it's, you see it seeping into the New Testament as well. We see here God's wrath is revealed from heaven against what? Against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Then catch this. This is, this, is, this is the big point from which Paul works out of. Why is God angry? Why does God care? I mean, you think about wrath, you think about God just being angry and faces red and all that. If he didn't care, he wouldn't be angry. So even the fact that God has wrath reminds us that he does love us, that he's not just withdrawn from us and just thrown the world out to the trash. He still cares. And he is upset. He is angry because everyone has done this. He says, those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. So normally when we think about, uh, when we think about people uh, who maybe don't know Jesus, we think about ourselves, we, a lot of times we'll think we're, we're just, we're typically good people, not that bad, we, we're nice, we, you know, people do charity and all that, you know, you want to think the best about people. And we, we give people the benefit of the doubt like that. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But what happens with that is we miss a fundamental reality that Paul wants to bring to us. He wants to remind us that no one is good. And even worse than that, no one is ignorant of God. You don't have to convince, this might sound crazy, you don't have to convince anybody that God exists even the atheist, even the agnostic. You don't have to convince them that God is real. That is something that they know. Look what Paul continues to say. How, how is this? How do people know this? He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain. What can be known about God? It's plain. You can see it. Everybody knows it. Like no one misses it. How is it made plain? God has shown it to them. So God's not withholding himself back. He's making himself known. What is the way in which he does that? 
He says in verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. So God has made it plain. He's shown it to them. It's clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Creation. What's around us, what we can see in the sunset, in the trees, in the mountains. Like we think uh, that it's just by some accident that when you're standing in the middle of the woods or looking at some beautiful vista that you just get caught up and raptured with you, how small you are. And you think, wow, like there's, as, as those of us who are Christians, we think this is, this God, our God is so beautiful, so amazing that he would just breathe this out. And, that, and it's declared to us silently, no words, none. But you know it. That's not unique to being a Christian, is Paul's point. That's unique to being a human being in the world. So the significance of this is that Paul knows that we like to wiggle. And we like to think, well, you know, um, I never heard the Bible preached really well. And so, you know, no one's discipled me. uh, So, you know, I just like, you know, like I'm, I got excuses, you know, like I, I'm not that bad. I mean, it's only if whatever, whatever, whatever. And Paul says no to that. I mean, think about uh, even scripture itself. I mean, this is something that you can, people can debate this and they can say, well, no, this is, this is just some old book, you know, that, that some men wrote, some good men, but it's just some book. It's not really God's word. And so they can wiggle out of that. But creation Looking outside, God has made himself plain through that. Now, he's not revealed a lot about himself. He's revealed very general things, that he has eternal power, that he's divine nature, so that he's existed forever, and that he, he is powerful, and that he's divine, that he's, he is God. He, there's someone, whoever did this is not like me, is what, is what creation tells us. And so what Paul is, is, is getting us to, to realize and, and getting us to see is that outside of Christ, you're not ignorant. You, everyone knows full well what they're doing. They have knowledge of God and they still reject him. It's not that they just never knew God. And if, they, if someone, if a missionary could have only came or if God could have just gotten Jesus to get in a plane and fly up into the sky and write in Jesus saves in the sky that, that all people would, oh, I get it. Finally, I get it. I'll come and become a Christian. No, it, it's deeper than that. Our rejection of God is almost subconscious. It's that deep. It's that ingrained in who we are. And what, be, what happens with this is we become torn because we see what is plain and we reject it. We buck against it. We push away from this. And as this, as this passage continues on, we begin to see that. It's like we're ripping in half. It's like our seams are just coming apart. Because the most fundamental, basic reality of the world, we're pushing away. That God exists and that he is powerful those basic things that he has made known about himself. So what happens with this? What, what begins to come out of this? 
Well, he says at the very end of, of that section of verse 20, he says, so they're without excuse. Everybody is without excuse. Nobody's ignorant. Nobody can wiggle out of this. Then in verse 21, he begins to say, uh, begins to tease this out. What, the, what, this then, what this does, as we're, begin, as we're be, beginning to be torn apart, as we reject what is so plain to us about God, he says, for although they knew God, so he's, he's saying they knew God. People, even subconsciously, there, there's something there that says, yeah, there's something bigger out there, outside of me. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. And so here we begin to see the, as we suppress the knowledge of God, and we do this even as Christians too. We do. We, we, we suppress, uh, not, not the general that God exists, but we suppress the specifics of God, of his character, and of his workforce. We, we suppress that. And what happens is it begins to ooze out in these uh, deformed ways. Their, their thinking became futile. They weren't able to think right because the most basic part of reality they've rejected. And so the foundation for which they lived was taken out from under them and their, their thinking was, uh, was degraded. But also their hearts. Their hearts were darkened. They're made black. And this, this pulls back to, uh, in verse 18, when he says that it's those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So it's not just that people intellectually think about God and say, oh no, I don't like that. They do that because of their unrighteousness. We do that because of our sin. We love our sin. We love the darkness. If you're honest with yourself, there's some, there's some part in you that's drawn to, to darkness. That's drawn to the very thing that you know will kill you. There, there's something off in us. We're broken. And we short circuit. And we keep going back. We, and we create habits of it. We get used to it. It becomes part of who we are. And when that happens, we've only got really one option. Is, is, is to suppress what we know to be true about God. And when that happens, our hearts grow darker and darker and darker. This is the paradox. This is the contradiction that all of humanity exists in. They know God and yet they reject God. So it's not that, uh, that, we, that God is foreign to us. He's intimately near to us. He's at our fingertips and yet we still push him away. And as we give in to pushing him away, we choose other things outside of him. And this becomes this vicious cycle of where there's this knowledge of him and, we, and he's there, but I, I, I want to reach out, but I don't. And then I, and then I can't because I've chosen something else. And it's just, you're, we're locked. It's like we're locked up. It's not that we're just blind and we don't see anything. It's that we're locked in this predicament. We're stuck short-circuiting over and over and over again. And we're trying to get out because there's this, there's this memory 
this faint whisper memory that there's some God out there or something. But it's, it, it's become so faint that we can't even grasp onto it. And so we grasp on to other things, other gods. We let them tell us what to do. We serve them. We lay down before them. And then that, that memory, that whisper gets even fainter and fainter and fainter. Until we, we see that we are just boxed in and we're stuck. And what happens with this, though, is, is you, as we'll see in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. When this happens, when this happens, we invent new ways of relating to the world and to God, to God's. And we think ourselves to be wise because we've actually become really foolish. And then he lists three things that we've done that, we, that make us uh, actually foolish when we think that we're being wise. He says, one, people exchange the truth of God for idols. And he says, people exchange the truth of God for a lie. And then the third thing that he says is that people exchange natural sexual practices for unnatural sexual practices. So this predicament that we're in, that we have knowledge of God and yet have become darkened and cannot make sense of our knowledge of God, we're broken to pieces upon God. Like we're, we're, every day we're thrust upon him and then we're broken upon him because we can't do anything with it and we actually don't really even want to, but we're faced with the reality every day. Boom, boom, boom. It's there, but we can't do anything about it and we don't want to. We can't and we don't want to. We, we're stuck. And we end up doing these extremely foolish things. The first thing that, that we see is we don't stop worshiping. We push away from God. You don't stop worshiping. Like no one stops being a worshiper just because you're not a Christian or just because you're a Christian who's living in sin or something like that. You don't stop worshiping. That, that's, that's all that we do. That's fundamentally who we are. We're, we're worshipers. And so when we have suppressed God and we have rejected him because he's not, he's not enticing to us, he doesn't captivate us, we get captivated by something else that seems more real to us. And it's, and, it's, and it's stupid, really, because he, he says in 23 that we end up exchanging God's glory for birds. Like, we, we would rather worship a bird than God. Creeping things. I don't know if that refers to spiders or lizards or whatever. We'd rather worship that than God. And we do that, right? We, we, we worship success. We worship approval. We worship recognition. We worship pleasure. We worship these things. And in so doing, we become fools. And what God then does, this is how his wrath is, 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 is enacted upon us. We want that sin, whatever it is, and he gives it to us. It says he gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity in verse 24. 
Verse eight, back to verse 18, it says the wrath of God is revealed. It's, it's revealed right now. Like there's a, there's a future reality, but it's also right now. God's wrath is being poured out. How? You get what you want. It, that's what you want? God says that, that's really what you want. Okay. Have fun. Enjoy that. He gives them up to that. That is, that is God's wrath. He says, you know me and you reject me and you choose someone else. Go ahead. Have them. And I think if it, this point, more than any other point in this passage, you just see how broken the whole thing is. The whole world, the whole system Every individual, we're just broken. I don't mean like sad. I mean broken, like we don't work. We can't function. So much so that we would give what is due to God to a bird. And it makes sense to us. And we think it works. We think we figured it out. We're worshiping birds over here. No one's ever done that. Yeah, we figured it out, finally. And we're fools. And so God gives that. He gives us over into that. Then he says that we, that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. This pulls back to Genesis 3. That idea of the serpent coming in and giving an opposite promise from God. God says... If you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will die. Serpent says, you eat of the fruit of this tree, you won't die. So which one are you going to pick? Which promise are you going to trust? And we've chosen the lie. We've chosen to grasp onto the lie for whatever reason. We've, we've exchanged truth for lies. And we do that. Even as Christians, even as followers of Christ, we, we give up truth for lies. And then, the, then it gets bizarre it seems like in verse 26 for this reason god gave them up to dishonorable passions so he he's he says this again he says three times they exchanged this for this and god gave them up to it they exchanged this for this god gave them up to it and then the third one says for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for the error. Where did this come from? <laughs> Out of nowhere, he's talking about homosexuality. Well, I think what this shows us that he would go there is he's not making a huge jump. He's telling us that the lines between God and man have become so blurred that anything is possible. Like we've lost the, the, the ability to have amazement and awe at God and so we give it to things that aren't God. It's like the, the axis of the universe is off and so because of that everything's just spinning out of control and it's been spinning out of control for a long time, you're born and it's spinning out of control and you think that's normal, but it's not. Just because it's been spinning out of control for a long time doesn't mean that that's the way that it's supposed to be. And so, 
I do want to make a remark here because I know that even in this room, uh, a room this size, there are people who struggle with same-sex attraction. That is a, that's a present reality. And so I want, to, uh, I want to speak to that and say that struggling with same-sex attraction is an entirely different, entirely different world than, than willfully giving yourself to homosexuality. Th- those are two totally different things. And so uh, if you're someone who is struggling with same-sex attraction, uh, please, uh, and, and you're fighting it, you see that it's wrong and, and, you, and you hate it and you don't know why it's there, please don't, don't put yourself into this. That's, you're not who's being spoken to here. This, this is those who see no problem with it, who give themselves to it. Um, even that which is so, he's, using, he's again, he's saying this is, this is so plain, what's natural. And then we, we take that and we turn it around. We exchange it for what is unnatural. So all this that, that Paul is doing here, he's getting us to a point where we, we, we should never become comfortable with our sin. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't become comfortable with it. The fact that it's there and that we, that we do it. But you and I should both become comfortable with facing it, with facing our ugliness, with being willing to look ourselves in the mirror. I think so many of us, myself included, I don't like to look myself in the mirror. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you confessed some serious sin to somebody? Probably been a while. Because we like to wiggle out of that. We don't like to face that. But if we don't do that, if we don't bring the black cloth under the diamond, we, we miss how good the gospel is because we miss how truly messed up we are. And, and it's not just you. That's the thing. This is everybody. That's his whole point. This is everybody. But the enemy tricks us into thinking that it's just it's you. You're the only one. And you're not. Paul brings everybody into this. And so we should grow comfortable with facing our sin. Then the last part of this passage, it's just like a machine gun of just boom, 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 boom. Just listen off these things. And what this, show, what, what this really shows us is that once that linchpin is pulled, anything can go. He's not, I mean, he's not just making this list of like, here's all the bad things that you can do. He's just saying like, he's trying to show a point that like, when, when, you, when you love your sins so much that you're willing to suppress the most basic truths in the world, you're willing to do anything. You're so off, you'll do anything. And so he walks through that. So where's the hope? Where's the silver lining in this? What is our hope in this? The point of this is that you and I actually need righteousness because our hearts need to to come to a place where we actually love God, not our sin. We need righteousness. And that is exactly what God offers to us. That is exactly what we saw in verses 16 and 17 from last week, that God gifts to us his righteousness by faith. He gives it to us freely. In this passage, as we, as we come nose to nose with the sinfulness of humanity, with our own sinfulness, what it allows us to see is what God is willing to say nevertheless to that God's not just saying nevertheless to someone who never knew about me and isn't that bad. No, he's saying nevertheless 
to you who rejects God and chooses other gods. You who loves false gods. Myself who runs from him, who gives myself to the very things which enslave me and which would have me die. He says to those, to those, to those things and to us who have given us, given ourselves to them, nevertheless, nevertheless, I will do something about it. I will right these wrongs. Let's pray. Father, it is not easy. It's not fun for us to think about who we are and especially who we uh, would be outside of your son, Jesus. But God, we know that we need to. God, we know that we need to be honest with ourselves. And so I pray tonight, even as we, uh, even as we go home, God, will we, not, uh, will we not leave in despair? But God, will we leave with sober-mindedness, with an accurate view of ourself, and knowing that this self, this person, is the one whom God loves. Not the prettied up person, not the prettied up version of me, but the one that's even worse off than I can imagine. That's the one that you died for, that you gave your life for. God, and we know that that can ignite our hearts for love for you and love for our neighbor. God, that is our only hope. Help us to trust in that. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.